0: Welcome to the Scale Up Palette podcast, where I bring the best founders and investors to help scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. His name is Scott, the CEO at Spiffy. Scott, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I, uh, uh, you know, When you approached me, I was like, I love talking about scaling up businesses. So um, I've been excited to have this chat
0: absolutely and uh, for the ones who don't know you uh scott was able to successfully started uh start four startups and exited free uh so far uh one of them uh the ipo in may of 2013 at 80 million uh ar channel advisor right so but better than me to introduce yourself we would love to get to know more about your background your amazing journey and uh, yeah, and a little bit uh, about your journey so far and uh, what motivated you to start Spiffy.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you the, the high-level overview and then we can right. dive
0: wherever you're interested.
1: So I <laughs> have an
0: entire episode just for the <laughs> journey, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh I have a, a engineering background, so I went to undergrad here in the states uh, at the University of South Carolina for computer engineering, then NC State for grad school, and got a master's. in um, In the world of computer engineering, you can do hardware software. I, I kind of lean towards the hard the software side. I'm not right. not very good at hardware. Uh, it's got a permanence to it that uh, that I don't like. I, I make a lot of mistakes, so software is kind of where where I can I can do better and fix my mistakes quickly. Um, And then went to work for a startup out of school and realized that I really like startups. And this was in the north area of the United States, uh, Mm -hmm. but I don't like, I'm from the south uh, and it was a lot of snow and I don't really do well in cold climates, I realized. So I moved Mm -hmm. back to the area here in North Carolina and started four companies. The first company was really, um, it was a great first company for a tech founder because it was in um, the engineering, the software space of, uh, it was called Stingray Software. Software, and we developed um C plus uh, widgets that other developers could use. Today we would call that dev tech. Um, so, because you know, I understood the customer, because I was the customer, so that was a that was a good right. first company. Um, and then the uh, it's easy to market to developers. You you kind of take your budget and you split it in half, and you put half on pizza and half on beer, and you <laughs> you put those things on a table, and it's like like a it's like pigeons. You know, developers flock to to wherever you are. Um, so marketing is pretty easy on that. And the <laughs> second company, um, I sold that first company, and uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I don't know if you can see some of my Star Wars collection here. Ooh, um, so I started buying bigger and bigger Star Wars things. And At this point in time, this is 1999, the e-commerce was born, and uh, there was all these auction sites out there. So I developed a company called Auction Rover that would search auction sites for things you were looking for, and it had a buying agent and selling tools got it sold that um and then um then that turned into those selling tools turned into a company called channel advisor which is the one i took public so started that in 2001 as kind of a spin out of what we had done at auction rover and Amazing. raised 90 million venture capital went public in 2013. Uh, this will actually be the 10-year anniversary so i'm, uh, I'm going to celebrate that this may and listen yeah and then uh okay and then um and then I had my first Uber experience around 2012, 2013. And as an e-commerce person, the way that hit me was we've seen products go digital in the form of e-commerce, go from this analog world where you have to go to the store. They control mm-hmm. the whole experience. You have no say in it. And it's wildly inefficient to you know Amazon, where you have an app, you press three buttons, and stuff comes to you. <laughs> and you have right. a total control of the experience. I, that's kind of what I say going digital. I, that's that whole experience wrapped up in one mm-hmm. word. So I had my first Uber experience and I was thinking, well, if you look at the GDP of the United States, Mm five trillion is goods, 10 trillion services. So we live in economies where services are actually way bigger than than products. So I Mm -hmm. felt like this is going to be twice the size of e-commerce. And it's gonna this digitalization is gonna happen faster because e-commerce took thirty years. A lot of it was the underlying infrastructure. Well, now we have, you know, iPhone seventeens right. and five G going to six G and all that's in, in place. Right. And uh, you know, it's just part of our daily lives. So started Spiffy with the idea of could we take car care digital and what would that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and really just as a you know, if you think meta, the whole idea here is let's go solve that. And in the process, what else can we learn about what is a perfect digital experience for a service? And mm-hmm. long-term, could we build the operating system for that? Could we could we figure out the secret sauce for delivering a great customer experience um, like Amazon did for overall e-commerce? Start with car care, but ultimately, could we do more? So, so that's what we're exploring at Spiffy.
0: Sounds, sounds really amazing. And to... So you were able to get the, the, the last one uh, to to IPO, but at the moment you are already pretty advanced It was already with Spiffy. With so you you raised the, the 30 million Series uh, C. How long ago, Scott? Uh,
1: yeah, so we just announced that uh, like 60 days ago. So, so just in oh, February, okay. we start. So we
0: course. are recording this on 14th of April. This will go live in, in May, so just, just for the ones to not get confused. Uh, cool, and uh, w- which... Which shows already that in terms of where, where are you in terms of headcount uh, any any revenue that you could share any any metrics
1: yeah i'm pretty transparent so we're at about a 60 million run rate six zero and wow. we have um so spiffy has we have our, our headcount and quarters which really in, in the headquarters which supports operations Our goal is to keep that relatively small and efficient. We have about 80 folks on that team, Um, but then out in the field we have over 500 technicians. Our our technicians that are out there doing the work are our employees. Um, So that's part of our model. We don't. This may be in um, in parts of Europe. This may sound. You know, we have two employment models in the United States. We have a W two it's called, which is the name Mm -hmm. of the tax form you file, where they're your employees. You give them benefits, and then there's one where they're contractors called 1099. Uber and Lyft in the United States use that 1099 model. We chose the W2 model because we really want to own and control the customer experience and be able to say to the customer, yeah, these are our employees. If if they're trained by us and uniformed and using our equipment and to provide the best experience, and if we do something wrong, we want to be able to stand by it and not point fingers and say, it's not our fault. You know, call this random contractor person and see if you can get them to fix it. So um, right. so they are our employees. So that's a, you know, so so we're at about a 600 person headcount. Um, but, you know, the the bulk of those are out in the field doing services every day.
0: Right. And, and you started the company in 2015, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, 2014 technically, but um, yeah. So we've been at it, you know, these things take a while. It's the other thing I've learned, you know, to to scale up. Um, You know, so we've been at it nine years. I would say the first three or four years, we're really in that product market fit, figuring out how to scale this. Um, And then just in the last four years, we've been hitting a doubling where we, we have really cracked the code on it.
0: Right. And what are the differences that you see from your experience scaling Channel Advisor from uh, 2001 to th- 2013 and now uh, 2014, uh, 15 uh, to 2023, uh, which is uh, quite impressive. So 22 years uh, scaling the last two companies, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. In some way, there's a lot of similarities. Um, and then there's a lot of things that are different. So, so the stuff that's similar all come down to people. You know so mm-hmm. you know you have to, to really scale a company you have to get good at um, and as a tech-based founder this is you know I, I kind of use this framework of what what skills do you have and how how do you fill the gaps and then how do you improve the skills you already have so when I started um, you know my first company my only skill was engineering like I could write code and whatnot and mm-hmm. I had no business skills um, and I, as a tech founder I'm, I'm kind of inherently an introvert. So what I discovered very quickly is um, to start a company, you have to be an extrovert and, and you have to, um, you know, I, I always tell other first time tech founders, I probably spend 90% of my time basically selling. If you kind of boil down the pie chart right. of what I do, I am persuading people. Um, and you know, it takes a lot of different flavors. So I may be persuading someone to invest in the company. I may be talking to existing investors and making sure they're happy. I may be hiring someone. I may be retaining someone. I may be talking to a customer. Um, uh, those, those things. Um, so those are the things that are very consistent across every company is Mm -hmm. just, just, you know, I've tried to work at that skill over time to get better and better at it. And I, I learned, you know, 10 things a day on that because it's just such a deep, deep area to, and I'm so new to it and I, I kind of am just stumbling along over 20 years to figure it out. <laughs> there's no, there's some books on it, but you know, most books about selling are what I would call, I don't know if this translate, but like super cheesy. They're just kind of, yeah. uh, they're kind of gimmicky, you know, they have like, you know, here's this, Clever way to close a deal or something. They're very used right. car salesmen. Um, yep. It's very hard to find uh, books that are really kind of teach you something new. I Once I got, once I kind of started looking at persuasion books, there's some really interesting tidbits yep. there.
0: But so that, that's the stuff that's very. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 The, uh, that's the common stuff. The things that are very different, obviously, is so Channel Advisor was born before cloud computing. Um, so we spent a lot of time at Channel Advisor thinking about, all right, we're going to need, you know, 400 servers, and that's going to cost two million dollars. And we're going to have to host them somewhere, and you know, we're going to have to get a team to go buy them and set them up and make sure they're running. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time and effort in the you know, in Channelvisor with that uh, and capital. We raised 90 million, and I would say probably 30 or 40 went to servers. Now, it ended up Incredible. being a competitive wow. edge because our competitors, in the world of e-commerce, you have this really interesting problem where, like, July 4th is your lowest day. The servers are just all sitting there idle. No one's doing online shopping on July 4th. Mm-hmm. Um, they're out doing their summer stuff and, and whatnot. Right. Um, and then you have Cyber Monday, which is 1,000 times bigger <laughs> than than July right. 4th. That's a hard computer science problem because you're you're dealing with, you know – this this really crazy logarithmic scale of things you have. Right. So you're, you're buying all these servers and they're sitting there idle except for basically a 45-day period where all the transactions happen. Um, uh, Fred Smith at FedEx, he's the CEO of FedEx, he calls it uh, building a church just for Easter Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, So, you know, so that's, but what, but the good thing about having to do that was it was a competitive moat and, you know, no competitor could spend as much as we could on servers because we, we were always ahead. Um, but then, you know, then cloud computing came along and suddenly we had a thousand competitors because they could get the exact same thing we had worked for right. by signing up for an AWS or a Google or or whatever account, Azure. Exactly. Yeah. So those are the things that are really different is the technology is right. changing so fast. Yeah, You know, I, I'm a, uh, I'm sure you're reading a lot about this and I'm enthralled with all this innovation in AI and what's yes. it going to mean to us as entrepreneurs. I think ultimately what it means is a lot of these administrative type roles mm-hmm. can either be replaced or augmented with AI. And, you know, maybe, maybe if I, you know, in three years, if I was going to start Spiffy again. Maybe I don't need eighty people in headquarters. Maybe I could do it with ten. You know, I, I don't. You know, right. And then you know, it's going to be really fascinating to see what that does. Uh, the good news is an AI can't uh, wash your car or change your oil. So, so I feel pretty good a- about where we are on that one. If a, I would be very worried if I was just doing a, you know, a pure software solution right now, because I think uh, that we're heading yeah. into this disruptive period none of us have ever experienced before, and it's going to be be kind of crazy to see what happens. Right.
0: So we, we always talk about, especially uh, second, third or fourth time founders like yourself, that product is super important, but then, but go to market is even more important, right? And uh, yeah. founders get obsessed about getting the go to market, right? Any lessons learned with, with spiffy about how to get the go to market right in, in the current area?
1: Yeah, it, it's a... Uh... So we spent a lot of time and energy on this at Channelvisor. You know, it, and once you get a SaaS business up to five or ten million, then product matters, but go-to-market is like ninety percent of it, and product's ten percent. Um, you could come out with the most killer feature ever, and it'll just sit there because no one's going to learn about it. We live in such a noisy world that, unfortunately, <laughs> awesome products are really hard to kind of punch through that noise. Even 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 if they're amazing, interesting. Um, yeah. Which, as a tech-based founder, you know, you feel like the world should should reward innovation, and, and okay. so it gets a little frustrating. But it's and sometimes you know, it's like the weather; I can't control the weather. So what am I going to do? I'm going to, you know, go get an umbrella. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, so at Spiffy, we've had this really interesting thing that. Um, uh, You know, we we spend maybe less than fifteen percent of our revenue on on go to market, and we don't Mm -hmm. really push on it too hard. Um, We turn away more business than we can handle. Um, So, so we're we're, you know, so of all the things I've started, that's the most unique thing about Spiffy. And the thing, also, it's got a bigger TAM or addressable market than anything I've ever you know done, um, which is kind of part of being consumer. The, the, other, the other part about Spiffy that, that you wouldn't know yeah. just looking at our website, we, we present, and we do have a, a consumer friendly brand, but uh, consumer is the minority of what we do. It's about 15 or 20%. B2B is the majority. Wow. And that's where we get swamped with, with demand. Um, and what happened is we started with wash and detail, so washing cars and detailing them. Mm-hmm. And then we added oil change. And We always wanted to do more with big fleets, um, and mm-hmm. we couldn't really crack the code on that. And then we introduced oil change and tires, and then that really um, opened that up for us. So we have, we have more business Federal. than we can kind of handle. And so we spend a lot more time triaging that business and figuring out. And also, unlike software, there's a geographic component to what we do, right? So we're in 30 cities in the United States, and then every day we get a third of our inbound requests on the consumer and fleet side are outside of those service areas. So that's always sad. And it makes us so that gives us this rich set of data, though, that kind of says where should we go next. So we, we have really good data that kind of points us to where we should be going. So that's something we think a lot about is that that map of where we are and where we need to go and how we, we figure that out. Um, but then, even, you know, even, uh, you know, so so so. For example, the last two days, I'm I'm in uh, the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. The last three days, we have this pollen, and we're at the end of pollen season, and it's sunny out. So the the demand has exceeded our capacity uh, right. by like two x. Uh, and then it rained today, um, so you know that. So it's like sold out, sold out, sold out, nothing. And then <laughs> that'll then what that will happen is that nothing. It doesn't get rid of the demand; it just pushes it forward. So then Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday will be sold out. So how do you, you know, how Super do we? Interesting. Never thought about it. Some yeah. of it's at a quarterly level; it's predictable. You know, and we mm-hmm. we lean into that, and we're kind of like, all right, we we knew in in you know March first that we needed to start scaling up. And we did, but then it kind of like the trajectory was way higher than than we had anticipated. Especially post COVID, things have gotten very oscillating and, and much harder to predict. Pre COVID, we were pretty good. Post COVID, right. there's it's just been a lot harder to predict, and so right. yeah. So are, also, we spend more time on yeah. that part of go to market versus right. how do I hire? How do I hire another hundred salespeople? At ChannelVisor, every you know, we had one lever, and that lever was hire salespeople, basically. And, Got it. You know, do some more marketing. You know, pour more money in marketing, uh, and we knew it worked there. So, like, increase that fifty percent. So, whatever growth is, throw that percent into marketing and then hire, you know, you would have to say, well, to grow 50%, we need this many bookings and this many sales reps, and we're going to de-risk it by hiring more sales reps than we need, because some of them won't be productive. So then, you know, from, call it, 2009 to 2013 we would have to hire like 50, 75, 100, right. 125, 160 sales reps for the year and you you know in these these SaaS models the sooner you get the sales rep in the sooner you get the bookings and the sooner you know so you kind of start January trying to hire, you know, 150 sales reps it's kind of right. it's a yeah it's really really crazy and, and no matter how hard you try to smooth it out it, it kind of is I don't know. It's, it's really hard to you get on this like really crazy roller coaster ride with with SaaS businesses.
0: Right. So the old the way, the the sales-led growth, uh, and of course with with sales complaining with marketing to provide more leads, to be able also to to scale. <laughs> And then ensuring that the majority of the of the sales team is also shipping quota, uh, which is always yeah. difficult to and get How shipped. do you
1: organize it? By ChannelVisor, yeah. we did a lot of things. We, we had kind of a, we had a set of customers that were transactional. So there were $20,000 a year customers. So they were, they were signed up in 30 days. Right. Then we had another set was like Nike and Lululemon that would take six months and they were seven figure deals. So we bifurcated mm-hmm. the sales force that way. And then it made sense to have them focus on different industries because talking to an auto parts retailer is different than Nike is different than Dell is different than you know right. um, Dick Sporting Goods or or a, sport, a sporting goods company yeah. of some kind. So so we found that domain right. knowledge, deal size, and domain knowledge is kind of how we ended up um, iterating to optimizing the sales team. But you know, yeah. there's you're constantly tweaking that and whatnot.
0: Something that you also uh refer that is really important is to be able to try to control or influence the pace of growth, right? So just typically people, when, when they see that they're leaving money on the table, they get freaked out and they try, sometimes they implode the company by trying to grow, uh, too fast, right? So you have an amazing problem because you have more demand than, than the supply that you are able to, uh, provide to, to that demand. But at the same time, it seems that you are, uh, calm in the way that you assess what is the the right space of growth to serve that demand and um, not sure if, if it is true or not, but, but it, it seems so. Right.
1: It is. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so I, you know, I kind of have a pretty simple playbook. And one of my pages of my entrepreneurial playbook is, you know, s- revenue growth solves many of your ills. Um, so it makes it easier mm-hmm. to uh, you know, investors are happy when you're growing revenue. Right. Uh, it's easier to raise capital. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the, the team, people on your team like to win. And setting a goal and hitting that goal feels good for everybody. So, so, that, that, so if we can hit a goal like that and still be leaving revenue on the table... Yes, my uh, I'm also uh older, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s. 20 year old Scott would have been like, We're gonna go get everything. I was kind of like a puppy, <laughs> just, let's get every dollar we can. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and you know, now I'm kind of like, Well, if we're hitting our goals and these things clearly are, are, we'll get to them. And yeah, we're losing them today, but they'll be there eventually. Um, you know, I think there's kind of more of a slow and steady kind of mindset, and then also. You know this business. Um, when I pitched VCs early on, um, so this yeah. is like you know what I'll say about Spiffy is this is like probably the most unfundable business I've ever started because we have high head count, we have vans, uh, right. we lease the vans. But VCs, it makes it very easy for them to say it's asset heavy, which is kind of a death, death, death mm-hmm. quadrant for them. Uh, and we're a service business, right? So, so you can imagine pitching, that, That's like. That's- you know, each one of those is a strike with the VC, and I just roll in. And in my first slide, I've got three strikes, so it's a, it's a, it's tough. Uh, and you know, but we have a little chip on our shoulder because you know, as I dig into that, I'll say, like, why don't you find service business? They're like, well, they can never scale, um, and I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, well, they can't grow fast because they get wrapped up in the people problem. I was mm-hmm. like, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I was hiring 300, you know, well, you know, at, at a SaaS business, I was, I, I was literally having to hire a hundred. Quota bearing sales right. reps, which is way more specialized and hard to find than an auto mechanic. Like, right. So, help me. So, I, I couldn't like logically parse why. And I think it's because they just hadn't seen it yet. I think that's kind of like, you know, everyone would say you could never build an e commerce business at scale until Amazon did it. Right. Now, everyone's mm-hmm. like, now everyone sees how to do right. it. It's it's, of- it's, you, you want to talk about asset heavy, that's asset heavy. But the result right. is they built a business worth a trillion dollars. So, so then, and and a competitive moat unlike any other, so yeah. uh, so we take a lot of pride in you know so we've grown over a hundred percent the last three years, um, And We we've proven you can do that, and you know there it, it's actually easier. You know it's easier than scaling Channel Advisor because it's a lot easier to find mechanics than it is you know quote unquote right. sales reps that know how to sell e commerce software. That you know those are those are uh, you know I won't say unicorns. Those are you know th- those are kind of like. You know, you know, very, very hard to find, very rare, and it's yeah. much easier to find a twenty dollars an hour mechanic. Just you know, right. kind of logically, makes sense, and you know, so, so part of the other thing is. But we could grow faster. The demand is there, but you can kind mm-hmm. of see there is an edge of how fast we can grow. And part of it is we could grow faster, but we'd have to if we had a hundred people at headquarters, we could grow faster. So there's a balance of how much cash we invest in kind of forward, just like a SaaS right. business would do, and how mm-hmm. fast we grow. So that's another input into that decision. To to you know, we've settled in you know, 100% growth last couple of years this year, we're gonna grow 65%. So because the numbers are getting large, oh, absolutely. Um, it, it feels yeah, like that's kind of right. Already, yeah. yeah. So it feels like, you know, we'll do 80 million this year. And that, that feels right, kind of given where we are. Yeah. Um. So, so, you know, the other fun thing, um, you know, the fun thing about doing what we do here in startup land is we're creating something no one created before, there's no roadmap, you know, we're just figuring mm-hmm. it out every day. And that's both Exciting and scary at the same time, and you know, so there's no there's no rule that says what we have to do. So we have to decide it and use the information we can and all the inputs to figure out what is that output going to look like.
0: Right. And tell us a, a, a bit more, uh, Scott, about the, the fundraising journey with uh, with Spiffy. So again, you started in 2014, 2015. Uh, when did you raise the initial rounds? So until you get to seriously Listen. Yeah,
1: yeah, and uh, I'll give you a little background on fundraising. My, my first company, Stingray Software, um, I tried to fundraise, and I probably did twenty pitches and got nothing but no's. Uh, <laughs> ridiculous! I was both ridiculously bad at it and didn't really understand the game. I guess you would say. Um, and you know, the biggest problem at my first company was we were profitable, and all the VCs would say, uh, you know, and the TAM was small. I didn't know to, to call it that, but they would say I right. couldn't invest in you and return the whole fund. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, do they really expect every cool. investment to return? a whole fund. Like, yeah, These guys must <laughs> just be making what they are talking you know. about. <laughs> yeah, they're supposed to be making like a thousand X if I do them math. <laughs> uh, and then, um, and then uh, you know, many of them really liked what we we're doing, but they would say the worst thing I could do is give you money because you're already have you're profitable and you figured this out. And I was kind of like. Well then, what's wow. venture capital for? You know. Exactly. Yeah. So then, my second company, I never made a, a dime and raised, and finally figured out how to raise capital. So that that's part of the secret is to uh, to 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 never get to, profit. to not have a profitable
0: <laughs> business. Yeah,
1: yeah you've got to have a path to profitability, but you almost like never want to really get. That, there. Exactly. Uh, that's uh, an so, important point. Yeah. Yeah. So at Spiffy, when uh, when we started it, I self-funded it for a while. So I've I've had enough success, I, I can self-fund. Right. It and then got it to a phase where I thought like we could do kind of a seed round. And I knew enough local VCs that were able to do a seed round. Mm -hmm. Um, Then then I was kind of in Death Valley, and I would go pitch. I thought we would get a lot of consumer. At that point in time, we were almost all consumer. So I went to Mm -hmm. a lot of the consumer-oriented VCs, And what really hurt us was the first generation of on-demand economy companies imploded. So a lot of these companies would raise big money from SoftBank and whatnot and go out of business. Um, A famous one was called... um, Lux l-u-x-e and it was on-demand valet parking so there was an app Mm -hmm. and you would be at a parking deck in san francisco you would press a button and a valet would come out and go park your car um and uh, you know so their their unit economics were they charged you five dollars and they paid thirty dollars to go pay the car so they their their gross margin was like minus twenty five dollars so they burned through a hundred million dollars very quickly and um and thus uh you know so i would go pitch um you know um so the 10 companies I pitched they all had lost hundreds of millions of dollars and said they mm-hmm. would never invest in this space again. So so that was that was tough and then everyone else I pitched you know they were like we only do B2B SaaS that's the number one thing i hear we don't do service business asset heavy right. and, and your consumer. Um, so uh, so we have like 10 strikes against us. But then what happened is um, you know i believe so so there's a couple schools of thought on pitching. Um, mm-hmm. I've been at this four times. You know, a lot of people think you should just be able to call ten VCs and get a check. That's that's not. You know, maybe I'm broken, or I like to think my ideas are so wacky that, that I I uh, I, I kind of hit the reset and I'm starting back at ground zero. But my general overall view is. I am a promiscuous pitcher, so I will pitch anybody. Um, Some entrepreneurs feel like, I'm only going to pitch, I'm going to really, I have one shot at at Andreessen Horowitz. And I'm going to, in two years, I'm going to go meet Jeff Jordan, and I'm going to have the perfect pitcher. My thinking is, I'll pitch anybody, because I use it to get better. And what I have found over my career is every no is a path to a yes. So that's what happened here so so a bunch of these people said no and then I would say my my uh, my secret sauce question is you know why why I want to understand why they're saying no so I can feed that back into the process some of it I can't change right I can't change our business model um, right. but you know maybe I can chip away at it if they say service businesses don't scale maybe over time I can say how could I convince them that we've figured that out um, yeah um, and then a lot of and then after that I'll say do you know anyone that may be interested in this And what I found is some of the VCs said, well, we have an LP that's a family office and they come from the convenience store world. They may Mm -hmm. be interested in this. So I started to discover this this family office and I'd never, you know, I've raised a lot of capital and I've never talked to a family office in my life. So what we we did is we put together a seed plus round of family offices. Um, So, um, you know, what I found was I would go pitch the family offices and they would say, I love this business. And I was like, I almost said why, you know, because I'd gotten so many no's. Exactly. And they're like, well, I come from the are you're grocery sure? industry. <laughs> yeah. They're like, I come from the grocery industry, and you're in an asset-light business. You have no assets. And your margins are huge. And you're going to be able to scale this way faster than we could scale grocery at 30% your year. You're going to be able to scale this 100%. So it was like right. the exact talking to operators. Uh-huh. They opposite. had the exact opposite view of venture capitalists. So, so that was a uh-huh. unique thing about Spiffy is we did around there. Then our series A was led by a VC that had taken a, they mostly did ad tech out of New York, and they took a risk on a company that was digitizing online automotive auctions. They were Mm -hmm. physical and taking them online. Um, And that company ended up being a unicorn for them, a billion-dollar valuation. So they were kind of like, let's poke around more in this mobility space. I ended up knowing one of those VCs. They really liked that we had – at that point, we had cracked fleet, and they liked that part. Um, So they led our Series A. And then what I found is once we got up over $20 then – then we kind of become, uh, there's this famous Jeff Bezos story where they bought this company called Woot and the founder had a breakfast with Jeff. Why'd you buy this company? He said, you're kind of like breakfast octopus, uh, which was on the menu where they were having breakfast. He's like, what do you mean? He's mm-hmm. like, we we don't know how you're doing what you're doing, but you make us curious. And we figured we want to own this to kind of like crack the code on how you're doing this. So so I think awesome. we, we, we're, we're kind of like this you know, this, uh, three eyed, um, monster that people are kind of like, this shouldn't exist. And it, it, it sparks mm-hmm. their curiosity. And as they dig in, they, they kind of, they kind of, um, and if they can track us for a while, so at first they'll come and they'll say, well, I'll present a plan. And they'll say, that's crazy. No service business can grow 80%. And then we'll grow a hundred percent. And they're like, wow, that, how'd you do that? And then we'll, we'll say, here's exactly how we did it. And then they, then they kind of, um, we, we have been able to chip away at that belief. Um, but it's because we're at a scale now that, that, makes them curious
0: right. right so and you were at, at series a and then uh, how things evolved uh, into series b scott
1: yeah series b we were just going to do an inside round and this company came to us at the last minute called edison and said we want to we want to put um 20 million into the series b well we we already were mostly full so we let them put a little bit in and then that teed them up for the series c Yeah, so Series A was led by Tribeca, Series B was an extension of that with a little bit of Edison, and then Edison led Series C.
0: So And and the crazy story in terms of fundraising, so you had an exit and and, uh, two, three companies before uh, Spiffy to talk to. So everyone would say that it it would be a walk in the park for you, but given the the business model and opportunity that you envisioned it, uh, there was a lot of friction and resistance from uh, VCs in in that way. Yeah, there's there's
1: two so. VCs that that invested in Channelizer that made 10x of their money, and you would think that they would be excited to write a check. Exactly. They're like, we hate this idea. You know, if you did B2B SaaS, we would write you a check right now. But this is the craziest idea we've ever heard. One right. of them said, you know, we don't want to invest in Spiffy because you don't use the um, you don't use the phone enough. I was like, "What? What's that mean?" They're like, "Well, Uber does a lot of cool stuff with the phone that you don't use. Like, they, you know, the GPS is kind of integral to the." And I'm kind of like, <laughs> I, don't, "I don't, understand."
0: Right, but you were saying you were seeing objections after objections. so it seems that again, it was very counterintuitive your vision, and it seems that investors were not getting the. The term, the speed of growth, the business model, working, the differentiation. And at a certain point, this will not work. When the metrics start coming, this maybe will require uh, a lot of capital and this will not grow fast enough at scale. Uh, And now you are proving that all of that is is possible and you are getting close to 80 million uh, this year. So you are getting to that 100 million and getting ready for uh, IPO or strategic uh, acquisition, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll have to, you know, on the on the topic of exits. Um, first of all, as an entrepreneur, you, there's never an oh. exit. I've learned that. So even when you sell your company, you're, you're uh, you know, back in the before 2008, pe- you know, acquirers would lock you in for a year. Now they lock you in for multiple years. So you're gonna you're gonna be with the company for another many Hello. years after you sell a company. So so everyone should wrap their head around that one, uh, and then. Um, you know, if you go public, you're really doubling down. So you're basically kind of committing to another five to ten years of, of leaving right. the company. Um, so they're really liquidity events and not really an exit. It's kind of I think there's a misnomer there, um, not right. not from you, but the overall venture for the venture guys. It's an exit, but for the founder, it's a it's a, you, know, you get some liquidity. Yeah, but yeah, um, you know. So I spent, and I love I, that vision.
0: Then to have this ambition of how do we build, how do we convert a hundred million business to a two hundred million or Half a billion business or one billion business, right? So, yeah. I think that's in terms of revenue, of course, not in terms of valuation, that uh, should be there already at IPO.
1: Yeah, and I always tell first-time founders, they're like, "How much? You know, how much time should I put on my exit slide?" I'm like, I don't have an exit slide because mm-hmm. you know, I don't want the investor to think. Um, that I spend time thinking on it. I, I spend almost no time thinking about it. I, you know, you should put ninety nine percent of your time on right. on the. You know, all right. If we're at eighty, what's one hundred and sixty look like? What's three hundred look like? How do we, you know, right? Um, you know, and we're not gonna we're not gonna do anything today. But you need to have a sketch of what that looks like. And, you know, what's fun at Spiffy is we have these three levers of the different geographies we can be in, the different service types, and then also the different types of customers. So there's consumer and fleet at a high level, but now we've got two flavors of consumer we have office and home, and then we have with fleets, we've got like six different flavors. So there's a lot of complexity inside of fleets. So it's kind of a fun, I kind of um, imagine them as Lego blocks, you know, like here's what the $80 million set of Lego blocks looks like. Mm -hmm. How do we, you know, what's 160? Is it just more of those Lego blocks or do we need a new? Type of Lego block we're going to have, have to kind of introduce now or in the next year to get to to that next kind of big leap of of growth. Um, right. So spend more time on that than planning an exit, and then the exit will come to you. If you if you can identify a big market, disrupt a lot of incumbents, and be the number one player, then exits, uh, liquidity events will come to you.
0: Absolutely, I know that you are very passionate about. Uh, how to leverage disruptive waves to, to build great companies and how how to digitize brick and mortar businesses, uh, kind of those services business that we've been talking about that Spiffy is doing in terms of car care. And I completely understand the pain that it is to need to go wash your car or change the oil or change your, your tires. I think that everyone can relate to that pain and, and the time that we waste. Uh, and how difficult it is to get it done and how amazing it is and convenient to get it done at home or at, uh, at office and uh, you know just leave the car it will be uh solved and then when you need to leave office or home uh it is working already so so what what are some of your thoughts uh about these trends that we are seeing, and what are the waves that 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 we see opportunities to disrupt nowadays?
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of my thinking here comes from um, studying Amazon over the last twenty years. I'm a I'm a huge Amazon geek, and it's just right. uh, endlessly fascinating. Um, you know, so there's a lot of cool things about Amazon. Um, and, you know, so at Advisor, I would go out to the West Coast every quarter and meet with Google. So I've met all these mm-hmm. really big, famous companies, and um, they all have a different culture. At, at Google, you have this set of like 100 engineers that basically run the company, and everyone else kind of pretends like they do stuff, but they really don't. Um, and they're all spoiled, spoiled, uh, rotten. There at Google, you know. They're, uh, I literally was touring one time uh, with an engineer, and they didn't have fresh coconut milk, and it, his whole day was ruined. I was kind of like, all right. That's crazy. (laughs) You're you're not going to survive if you ever have to leave Google. You're not going to survive. It it was basically like being in this kind of. And this is like a 35 year old man that basically was like living at home with his mom. You know, kind of like at in a luxury kind of resort kind of thing. And uh, um, and then eBay is interesting because eBay is run by a bunch of McKinsey, Bain consultant type people. Mm -hmm. So everyone at eBay spends all their time on slide presentations, and you know, so they're constantly presenting things, and no one knows anything. So you would go meet with with someone. So I'd go meet with the CEO and say, hey, our customers are having these four problems. So he'd have to to pull 20 people into the room to get to someone that knew enough about each of those problems to be able to kind of formulate an answer. Um, Then I would go meet with Amazon and I'd meet with a VP and I'd say, our customers are having these 12 problems. And he'd say, I know all about those. And he would iterate through them and give me a real-time view of what was going on with every one of them. And I was kind of like, how are they doing this? You know, Today, Amazon has over a million people. So back then, they probably had 500,000 people. So here's a 500,000-person organization where a VP knows what's going on around printing shipping labels for third-party sellers. And it's just nice. part of the culture and the way they do. There's a million things Amazon does um, uh, around how they set up their teams and, and let them – operate independently and they don't have these layers and silos and all that jazz so so a lot of my thinking around you know spiffy comes from can i take everything i've learned from watching amazon and e-commerce and apply it to a new space where i think there's going to be a digital disruption and i think the overall the big, big opportunity is digital services. So I think every service is going to go digital, um, and you know we can talk about what you know. There's, there's, it's a huge part of every economy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's home services, car services, um, travel what? services, food services, transportation services, all those kinds of things. Um, yeah. And we're just nibbling away at a small part of that. So you know, I think there's this huge, huge opportunity to to disrupt those things. So any, you know, what else? What I would say to entrepreneurs is anytime you have a bad customer experience that's an opportunity for you to innovate um right. you know some of the worst i don't know how this is where you are but um we have drugstores mm-hmm. here and it's just like you know the pharmacy uh, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just an incredibly bad customer experience you, you order your medicine and they say it's ready and you go there and they're right. like they, they, they can't they, you know like who are you they have to look up your name twice and then they look Close. at 12 places for the the pills or whatever they can't find it And they're like oh it really didn't get filled then you have to wait there 30 minutes then it ends up being an hour it's just like ridiculous you know like it, and it's so obviously i don't understand how it could possibly be that bad yeah. um, so that's just like you know that's something that has to be it's so so easy to create a better customer experience that you know and, and as you go through your life um, you know, those are the things that are huge opportunities. There there are people, what I've learned is they're in the, in the consumer behavior world. Um, mm-hmm. There's a convenience-oriented consumer and a value-oriented consumer. The value-oriented consumer is driven by price. So to get them, all you have to do is have a better price. Um, mm-hmm. What's more interesting to me is that convenience-oriented consumer, because if you can save them time um, they will right. be very loyal to your brand. The value-oriented consumer will leave you for a nickel, you know, for five cents. They, 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 they have no brand right. loyalty. They're loyal. They're loyal to price. Um, and the convenience-oriented consumer, you build up goodwill with them. The more you make their life easier, and so that's a really interesting set of customers to go figure out what they need and how you can deliver things for
0: them. Right. Amazing thoughts, and I, I see. I really see some uh, a lot of startups trying to disrupt the home services uh, kind of industry. I still feel there is space for new business models and for better execution. So, and, and a lot uh, of them try
1: to do marketplaces. I'm I'm a huge fan of market like was all about marketplaces, and I love product based marketplaces. Right. And mm-hmm. You can't just yank that out and put it here. Um, Uber and Lyft have done that very well, um, mm-hmm. but it's because to 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 what what happens is in the service world we're under service. There's not enough people to do the services. Um, so the way Uber and Lyft solve that is they take an right. individual that has time and then they put them in. And that's because the requirement is, do you have a vehicle? Uh, are you not a serial killer, and you can drive that from point A to point B? So hopefully that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> and, you know, but if the if, if the if the requirements are you're really good at cleaning a house, you're an auto mechanic, you know what we decided is we can't do a two sided marketplace here because we're going to have to go build the supply. We're going to have to figure out the secret sauce of how do we go add thirty um, auto automotive detailers to every city because there's five and that's all and 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 there's you know a marketplace on top of those five isn't going to solve the problem it's just going to make them busier right. um, it, and it's not going to have a better customer experience yeah. so i see a lot of startups in this space just building you know lead gen and marketplaces which which right. you know which are great ideas i don't think a lot of them are going to work because at the end of the day you're you're not really it's a different problem than in the product world.
0: Right. Did you uh, use or leverage uh, M&A to grow your previous companies or, or Spiffy or it was all yeah. organic growth? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So at Bowser we acquired um, four companies. So we had one that got us in the search space. We um, did some companies. So there's a lot of companies that looked like us, but were international. So we acquired Mm -hmm. a company out of Berlin. We acquired a company in France. We acquired... uh, We kind of acquired a company in China. Um, And yeah, so we did that. And um, here at Spiffy... What we've done is similar kind of thing. What what happens is, um, so so technologists mm-hmm. will try to build this, and, and then they'll kind of flame out before they get to a million. But then operators will start this, and they'll hit a ceiling at about a million because they haven't built the software infrastructure. And then they right. tend to call us and say, hey, um, you know, could we join up with Spiffy? So we've done three or four acquisitions. Uh, we did one relatively big one where once we got into fleets, um, our biggest segment of fleets is rental car companies. We found mm-hmm. there was a company in Florida that had kind of cornered the market on oil change for rental car companies. So we ended up competing with them vigorously and then then they kind of waved the white flag and, and we were able to uh, acquire them. That was a pretty big one that we did in 2019. Um, right. The other ones have been relatively small.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, an interesting topic to talk more about M&A to grow companies and uh, and to do it well. So I'm seeing more and more. Uh, that happened at, at earlier stages of of the scale up stage, right? So typically uh, in the past, I, I think that only after twenty or even fifty million ARR we would start thinking about acquisitions. Nowadays, I, I'm I'm starting to see it even at five million or uh, ten million ARR or on in revenue. So to to use that as an opportunity to grow quicker and to be able to have access also to a customer base. Uh, with a, a lower CAC in a in a certain way and in a in a smaller amount of time, uh, yep. which is also important for these kind of companies, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's the pros on um, acquisitions. You 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 covered them. The cons are they're most of them fail, so you have to be really. Um, and they take a lot of energy, yeah. So you have to really think about. I kind of use this metaphor as the juice worth yeah. the squeeze, kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so you don't want to acquire something too small because it takes a lot of energy, and, and correct. You don't want to acquire something too big because it can be really hard to digest and cause distraction. So, so Love it's a, it. uh, it's one of those things I wouldn't say I'm super good at, and always trying to learn more about how we could do it better and think about it. Um, yeah you know, at, at channelvisor, i would say half of them worked out okay it's 50 so far all of them have worked out well we yep. had early on we acquired a couple apps and uh those didn't so i think we had two that i would argue didn't work um yep. and then uh, as we've gotten more into fleet that's really worked the b2b side is is, is much easier for us to make work yeah
0: and it's interesting that you are saying that because that was my my feeling when any founder would talk to me about acquisitions I always walk away because I always saw that failing but what I'm seeing is now have yeah, like you uh, for the first, second, third time uh founders who had that experience who felt that m a and now are able to do it right and correct the fix the the mistakes that they've done in the past so it is possible and maybe it was not working also because we didn't have the skills to do it correctly right so at least that's what I'm uh observing because I had the, the, the same initial reaction oh let's think about organic growth forget m a because usually it will only distract us and maybe make us waste our precious resources and time.
1: <laughs> it, um, the One of the main reasons they fail, a lot of times goes back to the people side of things where you know the way I would do M and A before was I would say, all right, we're going to build you, bring you in the company, and you know you'll stay on and you know run this product. But then once you buy something, you take the sales team away from that entrepreneur, and you know then they get frustrated because they're like, your exactly. sales team sucks, they're not doing things the way I would do, and then they leave. Right. Now um, you know again taking a page out of the Amazon playbook, I've kind of thought, you know maybe it's okay for them to have their own salespeople. Why why not? Your your VP of sales isn't going to like that, but yeah. let's try it out. You know, let, let's kind of say, let's give this a year, let them have their own sales team and see what happens. And, you know, so so what I've I've kind of moved my pitch over to the entrepreneur being, you're going to run relatively autonomously in here. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it's, that, that's actually no different than what you're doing today, other than, you know, it's going to be less risky because you're in a bigger company. But what I'm going to add right. to your skill set is you're going to, you're at a $10 million company. We're 60. I'm going to be super transparent and I will share with you what goes on in board meetings, how I'm raising capital. Because mm-hmm. what I want you to do is I want your skill, I want to build your skill for your next company to be learning from how I'm doing this because I'm a couple of steps ahead of you. And right. that that works really well. And so so we've made it uh, an organization now where it attracts other entrepreneurs to come and you know they can have a fairly large amount of um, span of control and do mm-hmm. things, but then they like the fact that they can kind of see what's going on and, 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 and kind of learn about how we're doing things at the, at the $60 million level versus kind right. of where they were.
0: Yeah. Because that's, that's really very rare. I always like to share the numbers, uh, the might, might be more or less reliable, but we can understand how difficult it is that only 4% get to 1 million in revenue, only 0.4% get to 10 million and only 0.04% get to 100 million. So uh, so 10% of the ones who get to 1 million get to 10, and 10% of the ones who get to 10 get to uh, 100 million, and it shows how difficult it is. So there are not a lot of entrepreneurs out there with, with the same level of revenue that that you have with Spiffy and already you did it twice, which is even more rare <laughs> in the human yeah. species, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's part of the, you know, um, so that's, that's part of the pitch: is join with us, and uh, you know we we will take over the world together, and you'll have a fair amount of autonomy and and learn as you go along. And if you're not learning someday, come to me and we'll talk about it, and you know, then you can go Amazing. on and do your next thing. I, w- I would be uh, hypocritical if I didn't encourage people to to do other entrepreneurial things.
0: Before we go to the last segment of of the show, Scott. Uh, What's next for you? I also see that you you are involved with as a as an investor. I imagine that you are also doing some some business angel, uh being business angel. Uh you also have a podcast, the Jason and Scott uh show. So we, we have talked a lot about your entrepreneurial journey. Uh what is exciting you uh beyond Spiffy, right?
1: Yeah, so so you know, as a technologist, I love staying up to speed on all the different things going on in the technology world. Um, so the podcast is in many ways a platform for that, and it, it came from the my time in e commerce. So we mostly talk about e commerce there. We do hit on some startup topics, uh, and so that's the Jason and Scott show. And then in my first business, the Stingray Software Company. I was so uh, inexperienced that the only way I made it through that company was with a mentor. And it got to the point where I was using a lot of this mentor's time. And I said, his name was Richard Holcomb. And I said, Richard, I'm I'm using a ton of your time. Can I pay you for this or something, or give you uh, some ownership in the company? And he right. said, No. What? I, but what I want you to do is pay it forward. You know, I'm ten years older than you. And when you're 50, I want you to help those young entrepreneurs. So I've tried to do that. And then the first, so I'm in this Research Triangle Park area. So it's called Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. And we're a tech hub. We're not quite, we're not Silicon Valley. Um, We're kind of in the conversation with Austin and maybe like Nashville and Denver. Um, So kind Mm -hmm. of a tier two entrepreneurial market here. Um, We have three universities that all have engineering and comp size. So we've got a lot going on. And the first 15 years um, uh, of my career, my giving back to community was mentoring. So I did a lot of that. And because we just didn't have that many uh, entrepreneurs, to be honest with you. So it was encouraging people mm-hmm. you know, leave Cisco, start a company, you'll be right. okay. And even if it fails, you can always go back to Cisco. Cisco's not going anywhere. And, <laughs> um, and then between um, between channel advisor and spiffy i had some time and i looked around and we have so many startups now that it's almost you can't really separate the wheat from the chaff so mm-hmm. so you know what i uh, in the in the spirit of your podcast i was thinking well i'm really good at helping people scale up that's my skill i've really built up now <laughs> um, and and what i found is as i mentor entrepreneurs it's frustrating for all of us trying to get someone through product market fit yeah. because it's like to mentor someone on that, you almost have to be there full time. That's like why these accelerators work really well, because it's right. such a hard journey to help someone, you have to be a co-pilot. You know, I can't be a I can't drop in every thirty days and, and help you because mm-hmm. it's just such a, a very a, intense a grind mm-hmm. and, and intense thing. But once you get to a million, I can help you, you know, I can give you ten ideas in a quarter that can get you to one five and I'll give you ten more ideas after you tell me how that went. So 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 that's much easier for kind of how I, I like to mentor and coach. So oh. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, so we had like 3,000 companies and I was like, well, which ones can I help? And there was no one had, no one had kind of figured that out. So I put a list out called the tweener list. It's kind of the Goldilocks list of companies here. They have to be headquartered okay. in the triangle. I call it triangle tweener list. You can Google that.
0: Yeah. And
1: it, when I started, uh, I drew a line at a million ARR and 80 million. So one to 80 million. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, it was kind of arbitrary because I wanted to have 50 companies on the list, and that's the math that led to 50 companies. So oh, I published that in 2015. Today, there's 250 companies on that list, and I started two years ago. I started looking at the data, and you know, traditional VCs say they'll do 12 investments: a third are zeros, a third return what you invested, and then a third uh-huh. return more, and like you know, one. You know, one of those twelve is where they get all their returns. It's kind of a—it's right. a, called the power law of—it's a—it's a logarithmic distribution. Right. Um, and so I was looking at that list, and the the losses are two percent, and you catch every acquisition and every IPO. And I was kind of thinking, well, you know, wouldn't it be cool? I want to invest in that bucket of of companies, like you know. Mm-hmm. And I looked at some ways of doing that, and I couldn't really find a way that wouldn't make it my full time job. Then mm-hmm. a startup here in Silicon Valley called Angel List came up with this product called a rolling fund. And it's as if a closed fund, which is traditional VC, and a syndicate had a baby. Mm-hmm. And so it's got all the benefits of, um, you know, it, it was kind of perfect for what I wanted to do. So I wa- launched a rolling fund in the first quarter of 2000, last year, 2022. Um, mm-hmm. And so far, uh, what, what we do at this tweener fund is it's kind of the sister to this tweener list. We invest fifty thousand dollars in every company that hits a million dollars ARR in the Research Triangle Park area. So it's like building an index. So you know, in 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 the stock market, you could go buy a mutual fund, which is someone picking winners, which is traditional VC, or you can buy an S and P five hundred index. We're building the S and P five hundred index for Triangle startups. So that's love uh, it. That's kind of the the long answer. Um, but it's been fun. I really enjoy talking to other entrepreneurs. It kind of helps me scratch that itch of learning. You know, a lot of them are in yeah. machine learning and AI, so I get to kind of see what's going on. On in that world, You're up to speed, um, but yeah. it, it's really only five to ten hours a week, so it's perfect for kind of where I want to. You know, Spiffy's my full-time, ninety-nine percent job, um, and right. I spend a lot of my extra time on on supporting the ecosystem here.
0: Love it! Sounds really amazing and super innovative and uh, an inspiration to other entrepreneurs out there on how to support their communities. So let's go to the last segment of the show, Scott. If you would have the opportunity to have a coffee with yourself at the beginning of spiffy uh, what advice would you offer to your younger Scott?
1: Yeah, I would tell myself to trust my gut more. You know, so um, you know when you're a first-time entrepreneur, you have a lot of self-doubt, and um, you know you, you kind of have imposter syndrome a little bit. You're kind of like, wow, I got lucky with that first company. Uh, could I possibly do that again? <laughs> and, you know, and then the, you know, the the answer is if you can kind of like stick to a set of principles, it is repeatable. And you know, and, and they're 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 not they're they're actually very obvious. And it's funny, but a lot of people don't do them. And and the obvious things are, you know, get some customers, solve customer pain, talk to your customers, listen to them, give them more solutions. And you know, never lose sight of the customer. It's kind of like my 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 north star. There's a lot of other things around people and persuasion and all, but but that, as long as you do that, it, it it's almost hard to fail. Um, you know, because you know, hopefully you're you're delivering customer value, and then that that creates an economic engine. And um, you know, where where a lot of people get wrapped up around the axle is they get you know they get so excited about the technology they don't ever talk to a customer and um, you know that that's that's where I see a lot of lot of things. Or they they talk to so many customers, they end up doing um, individual solutions. So, so you have to have the discipline to listen to those customers and build a solution that works for a big cluster of them. Right. So, so I would I would tell myself that to just kind of trust my gut and that that mm-hmm. you know uh, double down on on things.
0: And what are you the most proud of on your journey so far?
1: Yeah, so so I'd kind of give you two answers. I think you know when I was 17, I was kind of an odd kid. Uh, I was uh, not super athletic, super geeky. I uh, set a goal for myself to take a company public. The The ulterior uh, motive was to get a Lamborghini, uh, which I, did, I never <laughs> did. But I was kind of like, I want a Lamborghini. How do you do that? Oh, you, you know, and I saw Bill Gates took Microsoft public. I was like, I want to do that. Um, okay. Because that's how you get a Lamborghini. Uh, exactly. So, you know, that, that goal was kind of silly and foolish and, and as a 17-year-old. But, uh, of course, I still wanted to do it, and I did it. So, so that felt good to kind of set a goal so far and, the, and you know, I Super inspiring. I think it was took thirty years to get there but but did. Um, you know but but you know, probably where I get the most enjoyment uh, a question I get a lot is like why do you keep doing this? And the reason I keep yep. doing this is um and where I get the most pleasure is you know, coming with an idea that hasn't existed mm-hmm. before and, and and then putting together a team that, you know, is folks some of them I know, but I always like start with fresh folks as well. And you know, and going and, and building that thing. That is so much fun. That's where, that's where I get the most enjoyment. And then one of the most incredible outputs of that is, uh, you know, creating other entrepreneurs. So, so I take a lot of pride in there's four or five uh, folks that have worked for me that are entrepreneurs. Um, and I, I take a lot of pride in, in, you know, having created a platform for them Mm -hmm. to hopefully have some influence on, on them getting to that part of their journey.
0: Love it. Worst advice ever received.
1: Oh, um, worst advice. Um. So at Channel Advisor, we had built the whole company on, on kind of selling on eBay. And mm-hmm. uh, Amazon came to us one day and said, uh, we're going to build a market. Amazon was largely a bookstore, at the, you know, you know yeah. online books, and they said we're going to go build a marketplace for toys. Is where they started, um, and we would love for you to support this. Uh, so, you know, one of my board members was very strongly against that and said, you know, if you do this Amazon thing, it's going to make eBay mad, and they're going to you're, you're going to ruin the whole business. So that was probably the, the worst advice. <laughs> I, I prevailed in that board discussion and uh, ended up being right on that one. Oh, amazing.
0: And, and, and now the resources. Your favorite book, and this can be business or non-business, all of this segment.
1: Yeah. Um, my my previous favorite book was Good to Great. I really like that one. Um, yeah. But, but it's been Collins. replaced with uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um. Yeah, by Ben Horowitz. Right uh, exactly. Yeah, I like that one. It's got it's kind of a little edgier, so I like the edginess of it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, we just went through COVID, and uh, he has a chapter in there called "Wartime CEO." uh, yeah. And that was my bible uh, when COVID was hitting. I was like heavy into wartime awesome. CEO mode, uh, that got me yes. through there. So I, I still, it still has a, a warm place in my heart uh, to help us get through COVID.
0: Now I have a bet on your favorite movie or series.
1: <laughs> yeah, this, this one should be pretty easy. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I like the original trilogy. Uh, of those three, Empire is my favorite. I kind of like the the mm-hmm. dark middle part of the story where you know we have the big reveal that Darth Vader says he's Luke's father, and then we kind of end with suspense. That the, uh, the uh, everything about that movie is incredible. So, so love love Empire.
0: Absolutely, and with great analogies with with real life. So favorite, and finally your favorite podcasts, excluding, uh, this one, but it, it can include your own, of course, the Jason and Scott show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I sample a lot of podcasts. There's a, I have a favorite star Wars podcast. Um, it's called Rebel Force <laughs> radio, uh, okay. but the one, you know, right now I really like this, uh, podcast all in it's, it's pretty popular. Yeah. Um, I love it. You know, it's some VCs and things, and, um, they do a good job of. Breaking down. It has some political stuff that's not really my thing, but um, you know that's they do a good job also. of talking about the macroeconomic things, and I, I think a lot about that. And it's interesting to hear their thoughts. And yeah. um, and you know they they have such different opinions that today mm-hmm. we live in a world where you know a lot of the podcasts have gone so political. Um, I can't listen to them anymore. Like he's like Scott Galloway, but he's like gone off the, the deep end. Um, mm-hmm. And you know I like that they can they they can have counter views and not hate each other and shut down the conversation. So right. very, increasingly rare in, in our, our our environment here in the United States.
0: Yeah, or say all the same thing, right? Uh, so yeah. they are able to disagree and respect each other and have valid arguments uh, about the disagreement, uh, yeah. and respectful disagreement. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And what you find is when people get super religiously locked into an idea, they can't argue the other side. Um, yep. So I like how they, you know, they, they have a core principle of being able to argue. If you can't argue both sides of something, then you're not really being intellectually honest. And, and you know, so there's a lot of lot of things they do there that Great. kind of are, that are, are a good structure that I like to kind of replicate.
0: Scott, your journey is uh, simply amazing. And I'm I'm really impressed by the plans for the future and your ambition and your uh, attitude to keep supporting the upcoming generations to build new companies and as you keep scaling companies yourself so thanks so much for making the time and you are always invited to come back
1: thanks mike and if you're ever over in the united states let me know and then when we launch uh in your uh, part of the world i will look you up and we'll have a
0: coffee Absolutely. Looking forward to that opportunity. And to our community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.